This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. This indictment was voted by a grand jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. And I invite everyone to read it in full, to understand the scope and the gravity of the crimes charged. No, I wouldn't waste my time on a phony indictment. I don't care about the indictment. indictment. You could, hey, you could indict a baloney sandwich. Well, unless you've been living under a rock for the past week or so, then by now I am confident that you're well aware of the fact that Donald Trump has been federally indicted on 38 charges last Thursday. Now, for this video, I primarily want to focus on the response from his supporters because I think that that portion of this story is yielding really important insight that a lot of people aren't picking up on that we all need to be well aware of. But before we get to that, I first want to just talk about the charges a little bit here because I just I can't overstate the severity of these charges. And when you go through the indictment itself, it is genuinely mind blowing. So as Common Dreams explains, the indictment, which journalist Judd Legum described as absolutely devastating, outlines that Trump faces 31 counts related to withholding national defense information. Additionally, he and Nada, this is his former aide, face five counts related to concealing possession of classified documents. They also each face a count related to making false statements to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The indictment accuses Trump of showing classified materials to people who lacked security clearance to see them at least twice at his golf club in New Jersey. The first time was in July of 2021 during an audio recorded meeting with a writer, a publisher, and two members of his staff. The former president showed and described a plan of attack that Trump said was prepared for him by the Department of Defense and a senior military official, according to the document. Trump told the individuals that the plan was highly confidential and secret. Trump also also said, as president, I could have declassified it and now I can't, you know, but this is still a secret. Then in August or September of 2021, Trump allegedly showed a representative of his political action committee a classified map related to a military operation, told the unnamed individual that he should not be doing so and said not to get too close. So let's just pause right there because there's a lot to take in. It's not just that he kept lots and lots of documents at Mar-a-Lago. And there are photographs included in the indictment of dozens of boxes, all of which containing classified materials. But it's not just that he kept this and he didn't give it back. He showed people. And on top of that, he's showing them saying, I really shouldn't be showing you this, but I'm doing it anyway. And there's evidence of this. These conversations are detailed in the indictment. And putting aside the fact that he literally willingly shared this information with people when he knew he shouldn't be doing that, he literally kept information about the United States' strategic vulnerabilities and actual fucking nuclear secrets, possibly in his bathroom. And to make matters worse, as CNN's Caitlin Collins points out, the indictment shows specifically how he was trying to obstruct in this case by, quote, suggesting that his attorney hide or destroy documents called for by the grand jury subpoena. I mean, even by Donald Trump's standards of idiocy, Brazen doesn't even begin to describe it. His own former attorney general is saying, actually, he may be toast. That's Bill Barr's words, not mine. And also saying that the indictment would still be damning even if only half of it were true. Now, listen, I understand that in this country, we essentially have a two-tier justice system that almost always pays deference to elites, but Trump was so shameless in his disregard for the law that they're just going to pretend as if he's a normal person. They're trying him as a normal person in this case. Now, that's a joke, obviously, but for an elite to actually be held accountable legally, for a former president to be indicted... What he did has to be pretty bad. The evidence has to be substantial. And 
in this case, yeah, that's that's certainly the case. I can confirm. The question is, are the crimes bad enough to get his supporters to turn on him? I think you know the answer to that question. It's obviously no. But a CNN reporter spoke with Trump supporters outside of Georgia's GOP convention that took place over the weekend. And what they said really is not surprising. But keep in mind that what these Trump supporters are saying is actually less problematic than what some of his other supporters are doing and more specifically planning. But before we get to that, let's watch. Special counsel Jack Smith announcing 37 criminal counts against Trump, the majority for violations of the Espionage Act doesn't matter to me not at all outside the state convention his supporters are unfazed i think it's a bunch of bull trump ain't done that wrong thing trump done is it saved this country they're not gonna let it stop mm -hmm. they can't stand the fact that he's running for president and i am a donald trump fan it's uh, probably altered um, but it's just typical typical uh, liberal propaganda None of the Republican voters CNN spoke with had read the indictment. No, I wouldn't waste my time on a phony indictment. I don't care about the indictment. indictment. You could, hey, you could indict a baloney sandwich. These loyalists share a deep sense of distrust against perceived opponents of Trump, including the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the press. Supporters routinely brought up President Joe Biden, former Vice President Mike Pence, and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton all had sensitive materials in their possession while out of public office. One big difference, Trump and his aide, Walnata, faced nearly a half dozen charges related to obstruction and concealment of documents, including for allegedly suggesting to his lawyers to not cooperate with a grand jury subpoena. In this whole fake indictment, they don't even once mention the presidential Records Act. The indictment outlines two different occasions. Trump allegedly showed classified documents to unauthorized people. And in 2021, Trump admitted on tape to having secret documents that he hadn't declassified, according to the indictment. As president, I could have declassified, but now I can't, Trump said, according to the transcript of the audio obtained by CNN. There's an audio recording of him doing so. We know that that can be changed. We know that that can be altered. Within the 49-page indictment, pictures showing boxes of classified documents stacked high in a Mar-a-Lago bathroom, ballroom, office space, and elsewhere. What he did is incorrect, absolutely incorrect. But the system allowed it to happen. The system is broken. It needs to be fixed. The convention also drew a handful of anti-Trump protesters, co-opting one of his most popular catchphrases in this quick moment of tension. Lock you up. Yeah, yeah you had you support Hillary Clinton. She done a lot wrong. Uh, you're an idiot. Ultimately, these Trump supporters could not point to any piece of evidence that would cause their support to waver. I think Trump is the best president we've ever had, and I'm all about getting him reelected. That was depressing, but at this point, it's not surprising because I've said it once, I'll say it again. This is a cult. Now, to be fair, we all have biases. We all feel cognitive dissonance when someone we like does something bad. Having said that, though, I don't think any of you watching are as bad as those supporters, regardless of who we're talking about here. I doubt that most sane people would put blind loyalty above facts and logic in the way that Trump supporters allow blind loyalty to Trump facts and logic, pun intended. For example, like just, just think about a recent example where we all were tested. Noam Chomsky, beloved intellectual on the left, we all learned that he was friendly with Jeffrey Epstein and the response from him was, mm, none of your business. Now, ask yourself this question. Even as disappointed as you were when you read these headlines about Noam Chomsky, did you throw your hands up and scream witch hunt or refuse to admit that this wasn't at least suspicious at a minimum? No. Because you're an adult, and as adults, we have the emotional capacity to adapt with new information, and we all had to grapple with the reality that Noam Chomsky perhaps isn't as good of a person as we all thought, even if no crime is being alleged specifically with regard to that issue. But still, this association with a human trafficker, a known human trafficker, it just, you would expect better from Noam Chomsky. Did you just throw a temper tantrum and accuse the journalist who broke that story of being corrupt or biased? No. 
But Trump supporters, they don't have the capacity to reason in the same way that we all do. But as depressing as their reluctance to accept any facts about uh, Trump may be, those are the least problematic of the bunch because there are the normal rank and file members of Trump's cult, which are the ones that we just saw. And then there are the violent members of Trump's cult who take things to the extreme. Let me tell you what I mean by that. As Vice News explains, in what is becoming a now all too familiar trend, former President Donald Trump's far right supporters have threatened civil war after news broke Thursday that the former president was indicted for allegedly taking classified documents from the White House without permission. Quote, we need to start killing these traitorous fuckstains, wrote one Trump supporter on the Donald a rapidly pro-Trump message board that played a key role in planning the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Another user added, it's not going to stop until bodies start stacking up. We are not civilly represented anymore, and they'll come for us next. Some of us, they already have. Trump supporters are making specific threats, too. In one post on the Donald titled, A Little Bit About Merrick Garland, His Wife, His Daughters, a user shared a link to an article about the Attorney General's children. Under the post, another user replied, his children are fair game as far as I'm concerned. Quote, it's perhaps time for that civil war that the damn Democrats have been trying to start for years now, a member of the Donald wrote. Another referencing former President Barack Obama and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said, fact, our forefathers would have hung these two for treason. Now, as a result of all of this, law enforcement officials are on high alert, fearing another January 6th on the date of his arraignment. And it doesn't help that Trump keeps lying about the situation and stoking the flames by trying to portray himself as the victim of a politically motivated witch hunt, when very clearly, if you look at the details here, it's obvious that that is not the case, right? You know, if you read the actual indictment, I think that it would be difficult to not conclude that this man isn't just guilty, but he is as guilty as you can possibly be. But that's why facts and logic, it's so important because these Trump supporters think, well, you know, Donald Trump, if they can come after a former president, then of course they'll come after his supporters. But the difference is that most of the time in this country, elites get away with crimes that the peasants would get prosecuted for doing immediately. And Trump, in this instance, he wasn't just keeping classified documents. He was showing them off to his friends saying, this is totally classified. Don't get too close. Like he knew what he was doing. But because of these very strong narratives that are deceitful on purpose intended to gin up support for Trump, these people think that if it starts with Trump, it's going to end with them, when that's not going to be the case unless you actually resort to violence or do something as brazen as Trump did. I mean, if you actually are storing these classified documents containing nuclear secrets at your private resorts, then, uh, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe they'll come for you next. But if you haven't been doing that, I don't think that you have anything to worry about. With regard to things that the peasants should be, uh, should be worried about, I mean, it's the militarization of police, how we are losing our First Amendment rights in this country in various states with the criminalization of protests, book banning. These are things that you should worry about with regard to the state cracking down on our civil rights and civil liberties. But for them, they see one elite get penalized, potentially held accountable, and they think, oh, my God, I'm next. No, this is why informing ourselves with facts and details are really important. But Regardless of what happens to Trump, one thing is very clear. His supporters are never, ever going to abandon him, and I think that most of us have come to terms with that reality. But the particularly worrying element about this story is how many Trump supporters immediately started to call for violence and a civil war after this news broke. News that we all expected for months, by the way. But let's zoom out a little bit and look at the broader political landscape with regard to the American right. We have Trump supporters proving that they're willing to resort to violence. They did it on January 6th, and they're plotting it again. You have genocidal rhetoric coming from many sitting politicians across the country when it comes to trans issues. And we have out and proud neo-Nazis who have repeatedly shown support for candidates like Ron DeSantis. Here's a picture of them protesting outside of Disney World this weekend. And none of this is happening in a vacuum. Trump may have ushered in this era of political violence, but it's not going to end with Donald Trump's political career, assuming 
that all of this legal turmoil is going to bring him down. So the point is that as a country, we need to recognize the danger of an increasingly violent far right in this country and buckle up because this is only the beginning of the right's devolution from proto-fascists to outright violent fascists. And as political news drops, this is something that I want people to pay attention to, the threats of violence that we are seeing increasingly. I mean, you don't have to look to the Donald to find evidence that the right is violence. All you have to do is log on to Twitter and you'll see many blue check Nazis calling for the deaths of LGBTQ plus people, calling for political violence. It is a common phenomenon now. And seeing it this much is a very worrying sign for the future of democracy. So it's something to keep in mind and pay attention to. I am very happy to report that the feud between Fox News and Tucker Carlson has now escalated into a full-blown war that will almost certainly result in a lengthy and messy court battle. So in other words, we have some good news today. Whenever the fascists fight each other, that's just genuinely a good thing to see. Now, he was fired from Fox News back in April for reportedly sending, we'll call them sussy text messages to a producer. He has since launched his own show on Twitter, stupidly named Tucker on Twitter, which is very creative. But that put him in direct violation of the non-compete that he signed with Fox News that is in effect until the end of 2024. Now, his first episode, which premiered on June 6th, apparently got over 100 million views, which is doubtful, but more on that in a moment. However, since he released this show, well, he defied his non-compete and Fox News is deciding to take action. And they have reportedly, according to Axios, sent him a cease and desist. Axios explains, Fox News has sent a cease and desist letter to Tucker Carlson as he ramps up a competing series on Twitter that drew a combined 169 nice million viewers for its first two episodes, Axios has learned. The contract battle between Fox and its former top host, who was taken off the air in April after the network's historic Dominion settlement, has mighty repercussions for the conservative media ecosystem. The cease and desist letter has not for publication in bold at the top. Fox is continuing to pay Carlson and maintains that his contract keeps his content exclusive to Fox through December 31st of 2024. Carlson is making a First Amendment argument for posting on Twitter and asserts that Fox has committed material breaches of his contract. Now, if Tucker Carlson can prove that Fox News is in material breach of that contract, then perhaps he could be let out of that so i don't know he may be legally in the right it's hard to say given the nature of tucker's work but as legal nature explains many states seek to limit the enforceability of non-compete agreements because they are seen as overly severe restrictions on competition these agreements can make it near impossible for employees to find more work after being let go non-compete agreements often prevent employees from working in the same industry as their former companies if they have spent their entire careers developing their expertise and skills in that particular industry then such employees will be effectively foreclosed from finding any comparable work on similar pay. Also, many states have policies of limiting these agreements to only certain types of professions. This is because such states view these professionals as vitally important to their state and want to ensure that those specific professionals are able to freely find work and change employers when needed. So legally speaking, this is a little bit tricky because Tucker's attorneys are basically saying that he is a really important vital if you will, voice in American politics, and he should be able to use his platform to comment on issues of public interest. But I'm not necessarily sure that a judge is going to compare the field of political commentary, especially the white supremacist brand, to other vitally important fields um, where you're dealing with engineering and valuable things that actually make a real contribution to the economy and to society. But generally speaking, I will say that I am vehemently against non-compete clauses because they are exploitative and anti-worker. One of my friends had to sign one when he worked for a bakery. And if I'm remembering correctly, he couldn't work for another bakery in the entire state of Oregon for two years after signing that non-compete clause. So generally speaking, these things are bad, but Tucker Carlson isn't necessarily in a similar situation as an average worker in the United States, right? This is somebody who is a political commentator who makes millions of dollars to just 
talk for a living. But as a matter of principle, yes, I am against non-compete clauses. But having said that, though, I'm not going to shed a single tear for a fascist like Tucker Carlson, although it will be interesting to see how this plays out legally, because if his attorneys are actually trying to make a First Amendment argument, that's not going to bode well for Tucker Carlson, because this is not the government who is silencing Tucker Carlson. Fox News is silencing Tucker is silencing Tucker Carlson. But either way, this is going to get ugly and lines are going to be drawn. And after Fox News already faced a tremendous amount of backlash for firing Tucker Carlson in the first place, they're only going to turn off more people by going after Tucker Carlson legally. I think the best course of action for Fox News, at least strategically speaking, if I cared about them, would be for them to just let this go. But they're not going to let this go because... They uh they feel as if uh, Tucker Carlson is now direct competition. Part of that may be because of the numbers that he's putting up. But let's get to that. So there's this claim that Tucker Carlson is putting up Mr. Beast numbers on Twitter. And it probably seems a little bit suspicious to you, right? His first two episodes got a combined 169 million views. Even with Twitter's algorithm boosting this show that much, that doesn't really pass the smell test, right? It seems a little bit suspicious, and that's because it is suspicious. As Mediaite explains, Musk has made a big push to show off the tweet view metric of posts on his platform, adding it to the interface. Now you can see how many people have viewed each tweet on the site. Last month, he hid the video view metric, which showed how many people watched the video on Twitter. Even the video view metric was pretty flimsy. According to Twitter, if you watch a video for two seconds with only half the video player in view, you count as one video view, which is absurd, by the way. The tweet view metric is even less valuable. It merely counts how many people viewed the tweet. So if you scrolled past Carlson's video on Twitter, you counted as one of the 114 million. Anyone who has logged into Twitter who views a tweet counts as a view, Twitter says. If you scrolled past the tweet multiple times, you counted more than once. Presumably, a small fraction of that big number watched even part of the clip. Twitter did not respond to a request for comment on the video metrics. Let's compare that to cable news. When Musk's boosters mock the 3.5 million that Carlson used to draw on his nightly Fox News show, they are referring to a metric from Nielsen that measures the average concurrent viewers of a program. If an average of 3.5 million people watched an episode of Tucker Carlson tonight on Fox News, the peak of concurrence is even higher, and the total viewership would be millions more. So Twitter essentially is counting impressions as views, which is insane. Now, as somebody who is in indie media and I have a vested interest in making sure that we overtake traditional media, we have to be accurate. And counting views by impressions just it's so disingenuous, but let's compare the way that YouTube accounts views. So each time a viewer intentionally initiates the playing of a video on their device and watches for at least 30 seconds, that counts as a view. And that's the way that it should be. However, Elon Musk, he wants to attract creators and advertisers to the platform. So he's making it seem like there's a lot of eyeballs and everybody's watching these videos on Twitter, but in actuality, that's just not true. So no, Tucker Carlson is not getting close to 170 million views on Twitter, and it's nonsensical to think that he would have an even bigger platform on social media than he had on Fox News. That doesn't that doesn't make sense. And even though this narrative is very beneficial to Elon Musk, at least in the short term, long term, this could land him in legal hot water as well, because if he's misleading advertisers about the number of views that are uh, before ads, that could be bad, and we've seen this play out before because Facebook was actually sued for knowingly inflating video view counts, which drove up the price of ads, obviously, which was a big no-no. Now, if Elon Musk is knowingly doing the same thing, which it seems like that is indeed the case, then it could come back to bite him in the ass as well. So this entire ordeal could end up hurting Elon Musk, potentially. It could also hurt Tucker Carlson in court if Fox News can use those inflated numbers to prove that he is real competition to Fox News. But at the same time, well, this could make Fox News even more unpopular among their far right base because they're choosing to go after Tucker Carlson. So this lawsuit, this legal battle could hurt Elon Musk, Tucker Carlson and Fox News, albeit in different ways, but it still could hurt them nonetheless. So we don't know how this is going to play out, but it is very much going to be entertaining. And I, for one, am going to enjoy the ride thoroughly. When I walk in the stall, 
and sit down um like 30 seconds in i start to hear this lady like ranting and raving about trans people and it and identities and blah 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 and i'm like she's probably talking about me figure out your identity in your bedroom like when i start recording i am a little confused because i've never had a problem um going to the bathroom since cutting my hair short but um for some reason i knew she was talking about me are you a man or a woman why does that matter well, because you're in a ladies room. Okay. And I have gotten called out several times for being in the men's room. Okay. And you're going to be called out for whatever you're doing. So what are you identifying as today? I don't think that's any of your business. Figure out your identity in your bedroom, uh -huh. okay? okay? And then project it on everybody else and we'll accept it. Uh -huh. This is not acceptable. Let's go get security. Yes, yeah, let's, let's do that. Um, she's harassing me for being in the bathroom. What's going on? Well, I'm asking her what her identity is. It's my girlfriend. So hold on, yes, woman. It's your girlfriend. Yes, so it's yeah, a girl. It doesn't matter. To the people asking why I didn't tell her what my identity was, it doesn't matter if I'm trans or not. I literally went in there to go to the bathroom to go pee. So the fact that she followed me into the bathroom thinking that I was a trans child to harass me and bully me out of the stall is unacceptable because I was literally going to the bathroom, minding my business. You just watched a cis woman explain how she was harassed while going to the bathroom simply because a transphobe suspected that she was trans due to her having short hair. Now, that happened a little more than a year ago, but the climate since then has gotten so much more toxic to the point where children are now increasingly the victims of harassment from these adult transvestigators. In fact, it happened last week at a track meet at a school in Kelowna, Canada, and a local affiliate explains two Kelowna moms are speaking out after their nine-year-old daughter was verbally assaulted at a track and field event on Thursday at Kelowna's Apple Bowl. The mothers who chose not to identify their daughters say she was competing in a shot put event when a grandfather of one of the other participants started yelling at her quote she went to step up to compete for the fourth grade shot put final and right before she went to throw a grandfather of a student said hey this is supposed to be a girl's event and why are you letting boys compete my daughter is cisgender born female uses she her pronouns she has a pixie haircut said mom heidi star star says the man then carried on to demand certification to prove that her daughter was born female he stopped the entire event he also pointed at another girl who also had short hair he then piped in and said well if she is not a boy then she is obviously trans star said the man's wife then started calling her a genital mutilator a groomer and a pedophile yeah now thankfully the superintendent has confirmed that the school is currently taking steps to ban this man permanently from all future school related sporting events but i mean the story really tells you a lot about the current climate that we're in right this happened in canada but it's the same if not worse in the united states bigots are now transvestigating children who they so much as perceive to be trans and the main reason that this is happening is because that little girl had short hair. I mean, think about how deranged this is. If you have a little girl who gets a pixie cut, now a bigot might think that they are trans. This is affecting cis people as well. That's how broad the transphobia is in our society. Now, there's this caricature about trans people that the right has created, specifically when it comes to trans people in sports, which probably explains the hypersensitivity of the jackass in this particular story. But I mean, there's this caricature where conservatives believe that there's this insecure man who can't athletically compete with the other men, so he chooses to identify as a woman specifically so he can dominate them in some sport. And this transphobic trope has been reinforced in pop culture on shows like South Park. But in actuality, this isn't a thing that is happening. Yet, the hysteria has led to trans and cis people getting harassed and trans students being excluded from school sports. Now, if this problem was so widespread with trans people just dominating female sports, then you would think that there'd be a plethora of examples of trans middle and high schoolers just crushing the competition right 
But in 2021, when the Associated Press reached out to two dozen conservative politicians who sponsored legislation banning trans girls from school sports in 20 different states, guess what they found? Quote, in almost every case, sponsors cannot cite a single instance in their own state or region where such participation has caused problems. And get this, GOP lawmakers in states like South Carolina and Tennessee even admitted that there might not even be a single transgender athlete in their entire state. But they justified this legislation by calling it proactive because they care about women's sports and little girls sports. Yeah, very interesting. You know, now, you would think that they'd have plenty of examples given how much time they spend focusing on this issue, but they couldn't cite a single example. These are the people writing the legislation. Isn't that interesting? Now, there's a reason why they can't cite a single example. And as Newsweek explains, privacy laws make it tough to identify the exact number of transgender athletes competing in public school sports, but researcher and medical physicist Joanna Harper estimates that the number can't exceed 100 nationwide. Now, to be clear, that's at the college level. It's just an estimate, but the number is very small. But what about K through 12? Well, Harvard Law's Alejandro Carballo, who's been tracking anti-trans legislation now for years, estimates that there is only 50 trans athletes in schools nationwide. Furthermore, Newsweek continues, Jillian Brandstetter, a spokesperson for the American Civil Liberties Union, said the number of transgender athletes isn't comprehensive, but she's also certain it's a very small portion of the nation's population. Brandstetter told Newsweek that Save Women's Sports, an organization advocating for banning transgender athletes from competing in girls' sports, identified only five transgender athletes competing on girls' teams in school sports for grades K through 12. Now, I want to stress that the organization, the main organization dedicated to advocating that trans girls should be banned from playing school sports can name just five trans athletes competing on girls' teams. It's a big country, and all they could find was just five examples. In other words, there are more Americans who were literally bitten by a shark than there are trans athletes at the K through 12 level. In fact, the total number of trans athletes barely surpasses the average number of people struck by lightning every single year, which is 28, by the way. And sadly, you are statistically far more likely to die from gun violence in this country than you are to even encounter a trans athlete. But despite this reality, conservative propagandists have successfully elevated the salience of this issue to the point where we've seen a sharp increase in the number of Americans who don't want trans athletes to play with cis athletes. Even Democrats saw a seven-point jump, according to this Gallup poll, since 2021, when again, the number of trans athletes is statistically insignificant. But despite the statistical unlikelihood that your child is going to compete with a trans child, well, everybody has been worked into a frenzy to where now these adults are transvestigating children, accusing them of being trans and thus having some sort of an unfair biological advantage simply because of the hairstyle that they have, as was the case with Kelowna. But I don't want to make it seem as if trans athletes are some mythical creatures because they do exist. And their stories are also very important. So let's talk about one trans athlete in the state of Kentucky. Her name is Fisher Wells. She was a seventh grader when she helped form her school's all-female hockey team. Nobody really was playing, but she got her friends together. They created a league for themselves. And when she learned that her state lawmakers were proposing a ban on trans athletes in school sports that would affect her, well, she decided to speak up. And I don't want to share her story. I'm going to let her share her own story because this is important. I'm Fisher Wells, and I would like to tell you my experience um, on the Westport girls field hockey team. Before, um, well, after COVID and we were just getting back in, the girls' field hockey team barely existed. It was just a thing that Westport had that nobody joined because everybody wanted to play, like, volleyball or something. Um, but then, uh, three people signed up. Uh, one of them was me. And I tried my very hardest to get minimum amount of people for the team and we got that and on our first game 
I got news that I couldn't play, and so I didn't play. I sat at home, um, watching television. Um, and then I got so many texts from my friends supporting me, and then, yeah, I got these wonderful pictures. We tied on that game, barely, by the way, which was fun. Um, but later it was resolved, and then I started to find out how disgusting the reason I couldn't play was. I really don't want this bill to pass because that means I can't play, and it will be extremely detrimental to my mental health as well. Um, because I know that sports is a great way for me to cope with things, like, it's just a good way for me to cope with things. Um, and it's why I recovered so very quickly from not being able to play, because later, like a few days later, I found out I could play, and I was able to play and have fun, and, like, every, like, my coach was crying. Like, she was like, oh my god, Fisher! Um, I just, it's disgusting that this bill is even suggested. It's terrible, and I've worked really hard and practiced so many hours. Um, I hope you don't vote on this bill, and I hope I can play in eighth grade. Thank you. So I referenced the Associated Press report about how Republican lawmakers couldn't cite any examples of trans athletes causing disruptions at their schools. But in theory, it's much harder to pass a really cruel policy like these trans athlete bans when you see the face of the person who you're going to be affecting, right? And because Fisher is the only known trans athlete in her state, this law would literally just affect her. So she showed up to tell her story and say, please, let me play with my friends. But even though this little girl took the time to explain to Republican lawmakers in Kentucky that the girls' hockey team, one, would not exist without her, and two, that her friends wanted to play with her, do you want to know what those Republicans did? Guess. They voted overwhelmingly in favor of banning her from the team that she helped to create. In fact, they overrode the governor's veto, even though they knew the law would affect one child in seventh grade who was hoping to be able to play in eighth grade. Now, maybe Fisher's story resonated with you, maybe it didn't, but I know exactly what you're gonna say if you are not inclined to support trans people. You're gonna say, Mike, we have to prevent these trans girls from playing with cis girls in order to maintain fairness and protect women's sports. We've heard this a lot, but here's the thing. The people who are passing these laws, they don't actually care about women's sports or girls' sports. And I say this because if they did, then where the fuck is their outrage for things like this? I got something to show y'all. So for the NCAA March Madness, the biggest tournament in college basketball for women, this is our weight room. Let me show y'all the men's weight room. Now, when pictures of our weight room got released versus the men's, the NCAA came out with a statement saying that it wasn't money, it was space that was a problem. Let me show y'all something else. Here's our practice court, right? And then here's that weight room. And then here's all this extra space. If you aren't upset about this problem, then you're a part of it. That was Sedona Prince. She is a female athlete who pointed out the inequities between the men's and women's teams at the University of Oregon. And what she's saying is that this is the problem. And if you care about women's sports, you should care about this. But what do conservatives do? They plug their ears and they point to trans athletes as the problem. Not what actual female athletes are saying are the problems affecting their sports. But as the human rights campaign puts it, the real threat to women's sports isn't transgender athletes. It's underfunding and lack of resources. And this is because women's sports receives far less funding than men's sports on average, with schools spending an estimated 71 cents on women's sports for every dollar they spend on men's sports. And when you look at sports funding across the board, specifically when it comes to travel, equipment, and recruitment, the disparities here are clear. So Kentucky Republicans who banned Fisher Wells from her state's hockey team under the pretense of protecting women's sports, 
I mean, why haven't they addressed the $7,600 plus disparity in funding between men's sports and women's sports? Other states that we've briefly mentioned here, like Tennessee and South Carolina, are perfectly fine, presumably, with $3,000 and $2,000 differences in funding, respectively, between men and women's sports. But yet they called their sponsoring of anti-trans sports bans them just being proactive. What about being proactive when it comes to the actual problems plaguing women's sports? And funding is obvious, but really it goes much deeper than funding. It also comes down to how female athletes are treated compared to men. Ali Kirshner, who is a women's coach for Stanford, detailed the differences between male and female athletes at the 2021 March Madness Tournament. And this is what she spoke about. Not only were there notable differences in facilities, but also in food and merchandise as well. In other photos shared by players, there was a visible difference in the caliber and quantity of what was received by the women teams from the event organizers. Men received enormous swag bags and high-quality food, while the women's teams only received a few merchandise items and lesser quality food. But I mean, the disparities in funding and treatment of female athletes, these have been long documented. But yet, Republicans, they got everyone to believe that it's the trans athletes. They're the ones who are the real danger to women's sports. And this should be obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. These conservatives don't care about women's sports at all, period. They concern troll about fairness in women's sports as a pretense to push transphobia, and that's why they do it. That's why they talk about this. But unfortunately, it's working. Even well-intentioned people who should know better are getting duped by the right's propagandistic trans panic that they've been pushing with regard to this issue. For example, someone I respect, like Ryan Grimm, responded to the Gallup poll we talked about earlier, which found that a majority of Americans are opposed to trans and cis athletes playing together. And he recommended an all-gender category as a solution, but Emma Viglin, who also does sports commentary, responded saying that this is a bad idea because the societal interest of including trans people in our social institutions, not in separate but equal categories, trumps arbitrary standards of competition in sports. We're talking incredibly small numbers here. Your solution others and isolates trans people. And she's absolutely correct about that. Now, Ryan Grimm followed up by asking, what's meant by separate but equal here? There shouldn't be separate categories or leagues. Emma responded saying, I mean that trans girls and women are girls and women, so they should be able to participate in female leagues. Designating this minuscule number of trans girls and women as a separate category based on dubious claims of unfairness opens the door to further discrimination and alienation. But Ryan pushed back, adding, The claims are not inherently dubious. Male bodies have athletic advantages on average. That's why the leagues are separate. I actually think the Biden Title IX proposal is pretty good. It allows trans girls and women to play in female leagues unless there's some articulable risk slash issue. Finally, Emma responded, saying, Competition is all about advantages and disadvantages. Should Yao Ming have been banned from the NBA for height advantage? Gender-affirming care, hormones for trans kids, would smooth without any theoretical advantage. In the meantime, trans people should be able to pursue their dreams. Now, David Dole chimed in asking, are you familiar with Michael Phelps? Should there be a separate league for people with these sorts of advantages? Should there be a separate NBA for players over 6'3"? And the paragraphs that David shares here explains how Phelps has a disproportionately vast wingspan. He's also double-jointed in his ankles, which gives his kicks more range, which obviously is a benefit when swimming. And he's even less prone to fatigue since his body produces half the lactic acid of typical athletes. And if you claim to care about fairness in sports, then the points that Emma Viglin and David Dole are making are absolutely crucial. I mean, should Michael Phelps' opponents have called for him to be banned because he has undeniable biological advantages? Should Muggsy Bogues, who is 5'3", been able to petition the NBA to sideline all of his opponents who are more than a foot taller than him? I mean, if we care about fairness in sports, then why are these questions thought to be so unreasonable, but yet we make an exception when it comes to unfairness, when it comes to gender? Gender is where we draw the line at fairness and unfairness in sports? Really? That's the hill that we're choosing to die on because reasons? Well, we know what those reasons are. The reasons are transphobia. The reasons are bigotry. And propaganda is a very powerful tool. And again, conservatives 
have been able to convince a majority of Americans that trans people, they're the real danger to women's sports. They've even convinced people who should know better, like Ryan Grimm. When he's falling for the propaganda, for this non-issue, that really goes to show you how repetition and just being loud pays off in politics. But again, trans people in sports is not an issue. But what is an issue is the treatment of trans people in this country, in other countries. Trans people exist, and they've always existed, and they're going to continue to exist. But their existence is not up for debate. But what is up for debate is how society treats trans people. You have a large portion of people that wants to treat them poorly as second-class citizens. And it's really telling that the bigots who advocate for that position, they have to resort to lies and hyperbole to sell discrimination to the masses, which really tells you a lot about which side of history they're on. Don't you think if they were so concerned about their position, they wouldn't have to lie? I mean, how many times have we heard that trans children are being mutilated when that's just simply not happening? Gender-affirming care for trans youth oftentimes, at the very young ages, involves social transition. Puberty blockers, when they reach the age where they're about to go through puberty, they have to lie because they know that if the spell of propaganda wore off, then most people probably wouldn't have an issue with trans people because this is a very small portion of the population and them being free to live their lives and pursue their dreams doesn't actually affect them. So these conservatives have to make up reasons to hate trans people, but it's all based on bullshit. Last week, Dr. Cornell West announced that he was running for president in the People's Party. And I think that the collective response was perfectly summed up by this tweet from the People's City Council of Los Angeles, because we were all just wondering why. This is a reactionary sham organization comprised of bigoted grifters, and his association with them only serves to legitimize this illegitimate pseudo-party. But Cornell West listened to feedback, and he made the following announcements on Twitter, quote, In the spirit of a broad united front and coalition strategy, I am pursuing the nomination of the Green Party for the President of the United States. Go to CornellWest24.com for more information to continue to support this unprecedented effort to empower precious poor and working people here and abroad. I thank the volunteers of the People's Party for the initial launch. So obviously distancing himself from the People's Party was a very wise decision, and he explained his reasoning further in an interview with Katie Halper. Let's watch. There was so much going on in, internally and, and therefore we had to be able to keep the focus where it belongs. And so we're, we're still, I am still deeply committed to a broad coalitional sensibility and the united front. And so I invite a variety of different organizations and that includes the People's Party, but I'm, I'm certainly moving in the not just toward but want to look forward to being a part of the nomination process of the green party yeah and you honestly can't blame him if the goal here is to elevate the salience of substantive political issues then this organization isn't a conduit to do that now as dave grizzcom pointed out on twitter the people's party seems to be taking the cornell west news well saying in their announcement of the news that dr cornell west quote folded to pressure from social media and family and tweeting about how much of a threat to the system its founder nick brana supposedly is which would be hilarious if it wasn't so pathetic but for those of you unaware in my audience about the issues many people have with the People's Party. We'll get into that a little bit, but my main concern with Dr. Cornell West running in this party, aside from their ideals, obviously, was where the money would go. Because you have so many people who just love Dr. Cornell West, rightfully so, and they might unknowingly donate to this organization that doesn't use this money wisely. I mean, how do we even know that the money would have gone to Dr. West's campaign, given the People's Party's past behavior and lack of transparency? 
I mean, I wouldn't feel comfortable giving money to this organization. And furthermore, as New Republic explains, numerous sources have corroborated sexual harassment allegations against party founder Nick Branham. Last year, former party member Paula Jean Swearingen told journalists Owen Higgins and Jordan Sheridan that she had witnessed Branham try to force himself onto former party executive director Zaina Day, who confirmed the allegations herself. Numerous party board members were apparently forced out for encouraging investigations into the allegations and questioning whether Brana was still fit to lead the party. After the allegations were made public, the party's social media accounts attacked and smeared those questioning the party leadership's actions. Other party volunteers and members have accused the party leadership of lacking democratic organizational processes, having opaque finances, and being generally disrespectful, manifesting sometimes in ableism and racism. And that's only really a small snapshot of some of the issues. They also spent $20,000 on a logo, which they didn't even use use which is just insane i said this on leftist mafia but um do you want to know how much i paid for the humanist report logo zero dollars made it myself so twenty thousand dollars for a logo that is not the best use of funds especially for a new party that is trying to engage in grassroots organizing now i'll also recommend reporting from status coup and activist renee johnston on twitter She's an activist and one of the party's first volunteers who took a lot of heat for speaking out against the organization. But as an actual real-life organizer herself, she quickly realized that the party just wasn't serious about building a real grassroots organization. But to be fair, there were other questions that people had about Dr. West's run, and these came up in a great panel discussion hosted by my leftist mafia co-host, Alimi. And also, following news that Dr. West switched to the Green Party, Tim Black pressed Dr. West on a number of these issues in the interview, which... Uh, was really great. I would highly recommend it. I'll link to both of these videos down below. Tim Black asked some really tough questions, but I think he was very fair. But I want to address the other elephant in the room, and it's this broader conversation surrounding third parties that we have every four years. Now, here's what I said about this initially on the leftist mafia last Thursday. If this were the Green Party, as Ole said, I would also feel better about this because you have the Green Party and the Libertarian Party every single cycle, right? So yes. theoretically speaking, you know, you have Green Party pulling from Dems, Libs, Libertarians pulling from Republicans. But if you add an extra component to that, to hypothetically take more votes away from the Democratic Party, we could be undercutting ourselves. And I'm, I'm done with the whole, um, you know, well... Third parties, maybe there's a chance. I, I've I've been really frustrated with the third party movement because nobody wants to put in the work to actually get a right. real third party. Like you have to get electoral reform. Like I was under the assumption in 2016, incorrectly so, that perhaps since Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were so unlikable that we could just kind of like overpower Duverger's law, you know, uh, right. put aside our first past the po that didn't happen. Like as Ben said. <laughs> Jill Stein got like what one two percent. So you you have to you have to actually change the electoral institutions. We need proportional representation at a minimum ranked choice voting. And I've seen everybody put the cart before the horse here, and you can't do that. You've got to change the institutions to get another party. And even if in a perfect world we get a multi-party system, capitalism is still going to corrupt each and every single one of those parties because the Democratic Party used to be a working class system. So we yeah. need to get to the root causes if we really want to disempower these elites. Now, I'll expand my thoughts about third parties more broadly speaking in a moment, but with that in mind, do I now feel less worried about Cornell West playing spoiler since he's running the Green Party? The answer is an unequivocal yes. And I say this because the Green Party has this base every single election cycle that includes people so disillusioned with the Democratic Party that these folks probably wouldn't vote at all if the green wasn't an option. So unless the Democratic Party moves back to the left and embraces its working class roots, I don't think that that's gonna change anytime soon. Furthermore, even if the Green Party isn't electorally viable, we have two pretty large third parties in this country, the Greens and the Libertarians. And if you accept that the Green Party is pulling votes, from the Democratic Party, which I don't necessarily believe, but if you think that they're directly pulling votes from Democrats, then you also have to assume that the Libertarian Party is pulling votes away from Republicans. And so long as both of these parties exist and they're at a similar size, then they effectively cancel out the spoiler effect for each other. And in fact, the Libertarian Party, in theory, pulls more votes from Republicans if you accept that premise, if you accept that Libertarians would vote for Republicans if they didn't have that Libertarian option. So when it comes to the Green Party playing spoiler, 
I don't necessarily feel that concerned about it. Although, having said that, though, I want to be very clear that stopping fascism is my number one priority. And that should be the number one priority for leftists. And voting strategically for Democrats to stop fascists in swing states is an absolute moral necessity, in my opinion. So even with libertarians canceling out the spoiler effect, I personally, I would not risk voting third party in a swing state, especially considering how close some of these elections have been in particular states these past couple of years. But zooming out and looking at the bigger picture, I do think that a liberal, a lot of liberals kind of overstate the role that Greens play in elections. But for years now, um, it's been clear that the spoiler effect is an issue that we do have to be concerned with. I am worried about the spoiler effect, but I'm not necessarily worried about the Green Party's role in playing spoiler. I'm worried about the role centrists potentially play as spoilers. So in 2016, we had potentially Michael Bloomberg getting in the race to play spoiler if Bernie Sanders won. And in 2020, Howard Schultz played that same role. And now in 2024, it's looking no different because as Politico explains, the centrist organization No Labels has defended its third party presidential bid by insisting there is a broad voter appetite for a candidate running in the political middle. But the group said it would likely exit the race entirely if Donald Trump doesn't win the GOP nomination, even as far more conservative candidates such as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis run to Trump's right. No Labels has been flirting openly with recruiting a moderate superstar like Senator Joe Manchin to lead its ticket. Such a gambit could dramatically scramble the presidential race and Democrats fear it could siphon votes from their side. So first of all, imagine unironically thinking that Manchin is a moderate superstar. I mean, that take is uh, hot to say the least. Now, second of all, no labels claims that there's no moderate candidate. And that's actually true. I do agree with them. But it's because Joe Biden is a center-right capitalist and the Republican frontrunners are all far-right fascists. So we don't actually have a true moderate. But their argument is that Biden is too far to the left. It's not only stupid uh, and unnecessary because the Democratic Party always kowtows the centrists while giving progressives the finger, but that's where I am most worried about the spoiler effect because I think that the Democratic Party they pick up a lot of votes from these normie centrists, these suburban liberals who maybe like the Republican Party but just feel turned off by the extremism. But if they had an option to vote for a conservative who wasn't as extreme but still delivered on the economic policies that they wanted, I think that a lot of them would would go for that. So I, I could actually see centrists pulling votes away from Joe Biden. Would it be enough to potentially steal the election? I mean, it's it's really hard to say, right? Um, but it does concern me because Joe Biden or Joe Manchin, rather, he doesn't necessarily have to get a lot of support. I don't think that he would, in fact, but he just has to get enough to peel off support from Biden in certain states to tip the election in Trump's favor. And that's it. And when the stakes are this high, they are really tempting fate here. But the spoiler effect would go away if both parties just agreed to enact nationwide ranked choice voting. But even if they did that, it's not the end all be all, but it would allow for sincere and strategic voting, which is important. The problem is that the duopoly isn't going to willingly give up power to third party opponents. So the best way I think to pursue this is through ballot initiatives at the state level. But in terms of my feelings about third parties, um, I think that my view has shifted with time. Uh, when I was a SOC Dem, it seemed like having more representation in the form of more electorally viable parties would really solve most of our issues. But as I kind of moved further to the left and became more explicitly anti-capitalist around 2019 or so, the target changed for me. The root cause, in my opinion, isn't necessarily the lack of representation, even though that is a problem. The root cause here is capitalism. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. So even if in that perfect world we had electoral reform and got a real multi-party system, we'd still see the forces of capitalism corrupt these new parties in the same way that they corrupted the Democratic Party, in the same way that they are corrupting third parties around the globe. I mean, Germany has a really solid electoral system that allows for five to six parties to be electorally viable. And I think that's a really good number because if you get too many parties like Brazil, then that kind of waters down their ideology. But if you have about five or six really strong parties that represent at least 
relatively speaking, um, most of the political spectrum, I think that's good. But when their Green Party entered into a coalition, they ended up voting for war to stay within the coalition. And the base was outraged, rightfully so. So, I mean, capitalism, it's always going to corrupt all of these institutions. I mean, it's not just political parties that capitalism corrupts. It corrupts our entire system. It eats away at it like a virus. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't pursue electoral reform and strive for a multi-party system. And that's not to say that, like, oh, you're pro-capitalist if you support third parties. Like, I'm not trying to make a leftier-than-thou argument. I'm just telling you my perspective and how my thinking has kind of changed. And, and with that in mind, you know, that's why I find it really hard personally to get excited about third parties or any parties and just electoral politics in general. Because in the context of our capitalist system, uh, the working class isn't going to be able to assume power until elites are disempowered entirely. It's a zero-sum game. But it's a bit of a conundrum, right? Because in order to empower the working class, we have to have power in the first place to take power from elites. How do you do that? I genuinely don't know the answer to that question, but I do think that it's probably got to start at the bottom and not the top. But in conclusion, getting back to Cornell West, I do think that running in the Green Party, even though, you know, you may still have criticisms of him and policy disagreements with him, I do think that it is commendable that he was willing to listen to criticism and adapt. I think that there isn't enough people that are willing to have an open mind when it comes to people criticizing them. But Cornell West demonstrated that he is willing to listen to his critics, and I think that that is really commendable. So we'll leave that there. Cornell West ditched the People's Party, and he's now running for the Green Party. I honestly would be curious to know your thoughts and not just like to farm engagement on YouTube. Like I'm genuinely curious to know where my audience stands on this particular issue. A candidate for the Babylon Town Council bearing it all on the campaign trail, <laughs> literally. Here in the town of Babylon, you could say Kevin Sabella Sr. was the candidate with nothing to hide. Look, we've talked about a lot of deranged Republican Party politicians on this program before, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that this one probably takes the cake. Meet Kevin Sabella Sr., pictured here on the left with Republican Congressman Nick Lolita on the right. Kevin is a local politician running in the Babylon Town Council race in New York, and he has made supporting cops his campaign slogan and has the bold mission that states, this is a paragraph. Click on edit text or double click on the text box to start editing the content. Very inspiring. Now he's made it very clear that he's running for council and proudly displays his campaign sign in his front yard along with his dick. Yeah. I have long ago stopped trying to understand the behavior of some people and this is one of those instances where i just i don't get it now to be clear we're not talking about him one time forgetting that he has no clothes on while taking a peek out the front door he does this every day deliberately as the New York Post reports, Sabella, 63, a well-respected financial advisor, Knights of Columbus trustee, and a church council member at his local Catholic parish, began exposing himself about two months ago, according to Victoria Lombardi. He's done it at least 10 times, Lombardi claimed. Now keep in mind, this is the account from one person. The first person to really speak up and sound the alarm, but odds are many people have seen this man's junk because he stands there for a while. Now, Lombardi is the 30-year-old woman who was cited in the article, but she's the one who originally sounded the alarm about this on Facebook using a pseudonym saying that it's been going on for several weeks and claims that every morning he would open the front door and expose his completely naked body. Now, she goes on to explain that the occurrences became even more frequent and he'd even wait for her van to drive by so he could flash her. And she was quoted by a local ABC News affiliate saying, Once we made eye contact and it happened a third time, I knew that it was intentional. And it is. Now, she took a video, and uh, this is the video that you're seeing right now. And as you can see, he also displays his name on his car. So this is incredibly deliberate. He very obviously wants everyone to know his name while he flashes them. But yet, he's running for local office. I mean, you've got to know that you're 
going to hurt your campaign. I mean, is he even thinking about this? Does the thrill just overpower the political ambitions? It's just genuinely perplexing. Now, I have read multiple articles in preparation for this story, and it's clear that they were all having a little bit too much fun with this story. For example, the New York Post writes, a Long Island political candidate who has pushed for transparency in government is certainly practicing what he preaches. There's more from ABC7, a local New York affiliate. In the town of Babylon, you could say Kevin Sabella Sr. is the candidate with nothing to hide. And they keep going. But what they're saying, while clever, is actually true. This is a candidate who is doing this despite his history of political activism in his city. New York Post continues, Sabella frequently hobnobs with local political grandees like Representative Nick Lolita and Representative Andrew Garbarino. His campaign for Babylon Town Council has been endorsed by both Babylon GOP Chairman Joe Barone as well as Suffolk County Republican Party boss Jesse Garcia. The pair even headlined a fundraiser and campaign kickoff party for him just days after Lombardi filmed her video. Sabella ran unsuccessfully for Babylon Town Council in 2021. Sabella's son, Kevin Sabella Jr., is also active in Republican politics in Long Island and was the party's nominee for a central Long Island State Assembly seat in 2018. The younger Sabella also works with his father at New York Life. Yeah, so it begs the question, does the son know? I'm assuming he doesn't know, um, but it's just very, very bizarre. I don't know how else to describe this situation. Now, at the time that I record this video, he still has not spoken to the press. In fact, when a New York Post reporter went to his home on Saturday to ask him about this, he refused to answer their questions. And on top of that, again, at the time that I record this video, subject to change, of course, he still has not suspended his campaign. I mean, at this point, you kind of have no choice because he possibly committed a crime here. So it's not just scandalous and inappropriate, but this is potential criminal activity here. So, of course, he needs to suspend his campaign. But when you have politicians like Donald Trump at the tippy top of this party running after being indicted multiple times and still refusing to step down, I mean, it kind of sets the stage for the rest of the party, even at the local level. Although I will say that to their credit, local Republicans have disavowed his campaign and residents are also speaking up. Here's the details from ABC News 7. Late today, Babylon's Republican committee telling us they'll no longer support Sabella Sr. in his run. We tried multiple ways to contact the candidate to see if he'll in fact withdraw from the race. Certainly residents in town have plenty to say about it. He definitely won't get my vote, that's for sure. It's shocking and it's scary. It's very inappropriate and he very clearly knew what he was doing. My concern would be that if he would ever get, be uh, elected uh, to the town board, I don't know what we would be able to trust him with. Yeah, so there you have it. Another day, another Republican politician letting their freak flag fly. It'd be curious to know how he would respond or if he tries to defend himself because it really seems indefensible and odds are now that one person spoke up, others are going to share their experiences as well. I mean, I would imagine that the neighbors have noticed this since it's such a common phenomenon, but either way, very, very bizarre, but not necessarily out of the realm of uh, Republican Party weirdness because, I mean, look at them. I feel like when you have a party that attracts clowns like this, this type of behavior isn't necessarily that surprising. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.